Good evening and welcome to the Digital Orthodontist Live, the first and only live podcast for orthodontists. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we're going to be discussing the topic of corporate orthodontics. I'm fortunate to be joined by four of the biggest names and experts on this topic, and here they are next to me. We have orthodontist, Van Dyke beard and karaoke enthusiast, and founder of Smile Doctors, Dr. Scott Law. We have orthodontist, former underwear model, founder of OrthoFi and Orthodontic Partners, Dr. Jamie Reynolds. Uh, we have orthodontist, Leo, scratch golfer and founder at Chorus Orthodontist, <laughs> Dr. Neil Adicula, and the leading expert on orthodontic practice transitions and the current record holder for most appearances on this show, TDO Live, Two. my ortho dad, Chris Benson. You've been on this show four times, I think. I'm so proud and of so you, son. You should be proud. <laughs> uh, and I'm proud of you too, Dad. Um, so how's everyone doing tonight? How are we doing? Great. Great. Yeah. yeah, we're coming to you from a nondescript uh, conference room in Dallas, Texas, where we all just enjoyed a steak together. It was fantastic. Um, thanks for joining me. Seriously, it is a true honor to have you on here. Uh, so, love it or hate it, corporate orthodontics is an increasingly common practice model in our profession, and it's something that I believe deserves more honest and open conversation. There's been a lot of discussion over the past few years, certainly the past few months, about corporate ortho, and uh, we're not going to be able to cover everything as pertains corporate orthodontics tonight, but I promise we'll try to touch on all the main points. As a disclaimer, because disclaimers are good, right, uh, my goal is not to pump up corporate orthodontics, as some have accused me. It's also not to tear it down. Uh, to be clear, I own my own orthodontic practice. I have no uh, plan to join an OSO. They probably wouldn't have me if I even wanted to. But uh, tonight's podcast has not been sponsored or initiated by any corporate orthodontic group. Um, and I can't guarantee that you will walk away tonight perfectly happy with the questions that I ask and the conversations that we hold. Uh, but I promise that I'll be fair, balanced, and authentic with my questions. Okay, so I'm told by my assistant over here that we have a great audience going. That's wonderful, thank you. You could be doing so many other things on your Friday night, but I'm glad you're sitting there with a drink and your slippers and robe watching this. Um, please be respectful in the chat. You know, we're <laughs> professionals, so don't call people names, please. Uh, but I do want you to comment and ask questions, and when we have good questions, they're gonna bring them over to me. We're gonna insert them into the action, okay? So that's the plan. We're gonna jump in by defining terms. I think that's helpful because I'm not an expert on this topic. These four are the experts. I'm sure you sitting at home, you may or may not be an expert at corporate orthodontics, but I'm going to start with Chris. So Chris, will you give us just a brief overview of OSOs, please? Well, I call it corporate dentistry. Most of these guys and their, at least their bosses don't like that term, but it, I think that's really how we think of it as lay people is corporate orthodontics, not being an independent or small group practice. Beyond that, it's alphabet soup. And so you've got OSOs, DSOs, there's a group called MB2 that invented a term and they want to be a DPO and so forth. But essentially, uh, what they all have in common is there's a doctor-owned company uh, that is licensed in the state where they practice and they have autonomy to diagnose and treat just like you do as an independent owner. There's a corporation, typically a holding company or, or something like that, that provides services to them uh, under a contract. And um, those services, you know, are all the things that you tell me you don't like about practicing orthodontics. You got to make the phone ring. You got to buy things. You have to have an HR coordinator. You have to um, 
you know, decide which direction the, the market's going and, and adapt to it that way. So really the back office support, these are all act like large group practices, I think, is how I would describe it. The orthodontists have a lot of independence on the way they diagnose and treat. That's not defined by the corporation um, or the OSO, which stands for Orthodox Support Organization um, or Orthodox Service Organization, DSO Dental, uh, not specific to ortho and so forth. So. Uh, basically corporate groups and they only account I think for about six or seven percent of the orthodontic space right now there's a lot of uh, you know acceleration in that marketplace in the last few years but um, it's still primarily an independent um, orthodontic space in the specialty yeah so you mentioned OSOs DSOs orthodontic versus dental I'm sure there's some difference uh, you know DSOs we're talking about a uh, dinner have been around 25 maybe 30 years and OSOs started yes Gus started eight years ago, uh, eight years ago mm -hmm. give, or, give or take mm -hmm. and then you know Jamie's and, and Chorus uh, we've had a number of, the, of them that started the last few years so there's a dozen or so orthodontic centric good choices for you to consider if you want to go this route um, you know when there was just a few they were kind of by geography um, now they're a little bit into each other's territory and some of them are structured differently than others you know I think they'll all speak about that probably at some point tonight yeah. but um, yeah I think it's uh, it's another option it's proving a, a great option for young orthodontists a good one for exit strategies and increasingly um, if you're in mid career cycle it can be great for you if if, if it's the right fit but sure. it's not for everybody that's for sure yeah Perfect. All right. I feel like I just learned many things, and I hope that you did, too. Um, I want to go kind of one at a time, because each of these three have a different story. You may know more or less about their groups, but I think that they're uh, all unique in their own way, and so I wanted to give them each time to talk about the history of their group and kind of their personal path uh, as it pertains corporate ortho. Uh, so, Scott, I'm going to start with you, since you were the first to, to start an OSO, if, if that's correct. Correct me where I'm wrong. Um, but I, I want you to walk us through where you got the idea for Smile Doctors, kind of what inspired you to do that, and then how it all started. Yeah, great. Well, let's see. Smile Doctors officially formed in 2015, so September 2015. And uh, But before then, we'd kind of been talking several orthodontists uh, to kind of throw a group together. We had no clue what we were thinking, what we were doing, um, what the idea would be, what, what was in it. It was just a, it was a concept. And we had heard that it was coming. It was coming to orthodontics and, and uh, general dentistry. At, at that point, I think there was Heartland, there was Aspen, there was Pacific, and so some big ones. And we could see what they were doing to the specialists. And it was almost felt like DSOs or corporate dentistry was known as someplace where the orthodontist or the specialist was just kind of bolted on mm. and uh, just ran through the, the cogs of the general dentist machine. Um, with that, one, one thing that we were most concerned about is what was that going to do to the specialty? Were we going to get gobbled up and, and didn't want that? So we, we formed an orthodontic only uh, DSO, or OSO, um, because we believed we could do it. I remember um, we were meeting and there was just there was a handful of us, five or six of us, in, the, in a hotel room. Somehow, Rick Workman, who was with Heartland, happened to be in town. I don't know if you've heard this story, Chris. Um, heard that we were meeting, and so they just got a 1.4 billion dollar valuation, I think, at the time. Teachers funded them, and um, he came in, saw us, saw. We told him what we were thinking to to do, and he told us how much he. 
had told us that it would never work. And uh, so it was interesting. I mean, he, he spilled a bunch of other knowledge, but, it, but he just kind of came across that way, that specialists wore pain in, in his neck. I think he still, he still, he'll still say that. But. You probably not help matters, you know, because you, <laughs> you proved him wrong. As, as it, I guess, yeah, right? as it, as okay. He's doing okay, though. I think he's on a Series G, so <laughs> he's doing all right. Um, is that a car? That's a plane. Sorry. Yeah, so um, anyway, yeah, we did that, and then we just decided that instead of, like, I guess the term we were using, instead of uh, being on the plate, we wanted a seat at the table to kind of determine our own destiny of what the future looked like. Yeah. So uh, we we thought we had a pretty good idea of how that would go. Uh, we didn't we didn't really know. But, uh, formed Smile Doctors and and uh, began on our merry way at that time. Well, tell us how it's gone. My next question is: How yeah. many locations do you have? How many states are you in? So currently, I, I had to uh, had to look at this recently. So uh, we're at 314 locations in about 25 states. So that's. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. Um, so I, there's going to be times where I want to get into specific questions, and, and sometimes I want to ask difficult questions. So that's all coming. If you're out there champing at the bit for difficult questions, they're coming. Don't worry. Um, we're just trying to ease into it. It's like a date. These are the appetizers. Um, so I want to get specifically into a really big news item at the end of last year, like December 21st or something. Um, it was announced that Thomas H. Lee Partners, THL, joined Linden Capital Partners, I'm explaining this as if you don't know, um, as an equal investor in Smile Doctors at a $2.4 billion valuation. Uh, so I want to ask a couple specifics about this just because this is a big moment. Um, how did this partnership come about? And then, of course, how did it benefit Smile Docs? Awesome. So um, let's see, our original, our original partners were Sheridan Capital and Sheridan it changed hands to Linden. We've been with Linden since about 2018, I believe, 2017, end of 2017. They've been phenomenal partners. They're the only, they're the largest healthcare-only PE fund in the world. And so um, they understand, doctors understand how we think, understand what we want, um, understand us as, uh, as partners and, and where it's going, how they can help us, help support investment in different areas in order to help us grow. Make decisions, and uh, so um, came about that. Yeah, we he, they'd held us since 2017, and and just felt that yes, the the markets, everything looked great. We'd appreciate it as a business enough that that we we could go to market. We could, we could see what that looks like, and uh, and as we did when we went, um, yeah, we had the the great fortune to partner with Th Lee, and uh, and. Um, I'm really excited about it. So came on as, as growth investors, side by side with Linden, um, to be able to take us to the next level of what we want to do and go achieve. So bring a whole other area of expertise outside of healthcare that Linden's primarily focused on with, with their different um, retail experience. Sure. Fantastic. So some of the terms, like I've spent like the last two weeks, I feel like in corporate ortho 101 trying to understand these terms and obviously they're not as second nature to me. Um, as, a lot, as it is to you, but like you call this, what, a recapitalization event? Is that yeah. fair? And the, the, the first that you had maybe in the previous was a capitalization event, but call it an equity event, I guess, on some level. Perfect. Uh, what are some positives, what are some negatives of, as it pertains to this, like a recapitalization event? Like if I'm a, a member of this and I'm maybe on another side of this, like thinking about potentially being a member, like what should I know about an event like that? Yeah, uh, positives were our doctors got to take Chips off the table. You got to get paid. Negatives. A lot of taxes for that. Um, the, okay. Yeah, it happened. We we're able to do it in 2021, and so we knew what the tax law is. 
Um, versus 22, we don't know what, what's going to happen right. on cap gains and all that stuff. But yeah, um, it, it's, it's a time where, fortunately, like I said, Lyndon really understands our doctor's mindsets, held for, for about four years or so, and so it was, it was time to get money back in the hands of, <coughs> of all the financial part, all the partners. Yeah. So, yeah. Perfect. Jamie, I'm coming to you. Guys, it's hot in this room. It is toasty. Yeah. <laughs> or was it the lights or if it's just wearing this big jacket? I don't know. But, um, so <clears throat> Jamie Reynolds, as I said, uh, former uh, underwear model. Um, by the, that's not true. Uh, by the time uh, you helped start Orthodontic Partners, you and Jeff Kozlowski and then other people, I'm sure, um, there's already a few OSOs that were up and running. Um, why did you decide to do your own group instead of joining an existing group? Um, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of work with OrthoFi. Mm -hmm. And uh, OrthoFi had uh, gone through a lot of growth, and they were starting to get um, interest from investors. And um, uh, the Dave turning the CEO, the phone would ring, in, and half of them would be calling asking about investing in OrthoFi. And it was the same time I think that you were going to market for Sheridan. So there was a lot of the investment community that was looking at the success that Smile Doctors had had. And they would, the other half would say, No, 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 we don't want to invest in OrthoFi. We actually want you to introduce us to the next people that are going to be. Small doctors too, right? And so um, Dave, the CEO, would give them mine and Kaz's phone number, and we just started talking to them, trying to do our homework on what was happening in the space. Um, and we became convinced after talking to a number of different interested investors that you know the tipping point of uh, investment-backed opportunities coming into the electronic space was either there or about to be there. There was going to be a bunch of different groups, and so we had to decide either to stay on the sideline and keep doing the things that we wanted to do um, or to, um, try to do our own. Um, and it wasn't the easiest decision, honestly. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, we were reluctant to enter that space. Um, on the other hand, we felt like in going through what we, what we did to start OrthoFi from scratch, basically, um, we had some knowledge uh, about what investment-backed uh, businesses were like and how we might be able to structure one that would be a good opportunity from a business perspective and from a doctor perspective. Um, you know, and we also um, saw, heard the market and, you know, at the time you guys were doing basically only smile doctor practices and, and different things clinically than you're doing now. And the market was saying, hey, I think we want some something different. Um, and, and, all, and, and then the, the final piece is we, we found a really great partner that um, we believe would get behind our vision which was to build a, a different um, organization that focused on clinical orthodontics at, at its heart. Um, and all those things kind of came together to, we started in um, the very end of 2019. Right. Months before COVID, you were saying. <laughs> yeah, like the perfect Two timing. months before COVID, yeah. That's yeah. great timing. Uh, so if, if you look up uh, orthodontic partners and you look at, uh, you know, their the kind of key partners, uh, it's an impressive lineup. It looks like basically like a speaking track at a meeting. I mean, you've got David Sarver, you got Stuart Frost, Maz Bashiri, Nicole Wax. Um, in fairness, this is like my past TDO Live guest list. So I'm, I'm somewhat offended, but also, I don't know, like honored or something flattered, I guess. Um, how did you get all those big names to join? Like, and was that by intent, I guess? Um, you know, Again, I learned a lot from private practice and from going through growing another organization. And um, I believe that any organization at its core is about its people. Um, and, and one of the biggest 
you know concerns that any of us have is that somehow the the corporate side of things are going to dictate the clinical aspect of it and so our our vision was to put together enough great clinical orthodontists and show that it could also be a successful business that that would become integrated into the fiber of the organization and no one want to change that and we wanted people that you know I don't know if any of you know David Sarver but you'd like to try to tell him how to do things in the clinic good luck with that you know and so yeah I know you know right so cheers David and Stuart and Moz and all those other people we wanted to create enough momentum with the organization that it would be inevitable continue doing things that we set out to do yeah so very good all right we come to my good friend Anil you're actually, I think, the second most common guest I've had on this show. So there's that. Oh, um, silver medal. Yeah, silver medal for you. Um, so I originally thought Chorus, Chorus Orthodontist, I thought it was an exclusively Canadian OSO, mm-hmm. um, and that you joined later, because you are not Canadian. Uh, but apparently, <laughs> you were one of the 18 original founders. Mm-hmm. That's a big crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell me how it started then. Uh, what's unique about Chorus, and why did you do it? So actually, a, a lot of... A lot of the start of that, for me personally, started with these guys right here on my right. Um, Scott is one of the leaders, Scott and Dana, in terms of introducing to my generation this OSO model and an alternative practice model to orthodontics, right? So thank you, brother. I think we all owe you guys a lot of gratitude for opening our eyes to something like that. And um, around 2014, 2015, Jamie and I connected, and a couple others, and we decided to meet regularly as like a little tiny uh, lean and mean study club and research these models and see what is this model about. Um, So we've had many good times together talking about that, and one of the great things about this panel is we're all really, really good friends, which is awesome. Um, So Jamie and myself and a couple others kept exploring that for a while. Uh, Obviously, we picked Chris's brain a lot, and, it was a very interesting model with these uh, with these entries with uh, PE-backed groups, and obviously the appetite was pretty rich. Um, and then I have a different study club that I uh, attend, and um, one of the guys in the study club was my biggest inspiration for philanthropy. And on my first study club, he was the one that kind of gave me the grace and said, you continually give to your community and don't look back because that's going to be okay, and he is my absolute rival for giving back to communities, and his name is Paul Helpert, who happens to be the CEO and founder of Chorus. And um, in 2019, he uh, he told me about this model that he had, and um, it was a way for orthodontists to have a little bit more control over the consolidation market, because um, he saw where all the signs were pointing with disruptors, with um, the appetite for private equity, uh, with competitiveness amongst colleagues. All these things were happening um, and pointing towards the fact that consolidation was going to happen regardless, which I think we all here believe. To what percent? That can always be debatable. I would say that Chris is probably going to be the expert on how far that's going to go. And, uh, and Paul felt very convicted, and he said that orthodontists should try to lead this and shape this and evolve the specialty and attempt to preserve the specialty. So that resonated a lot with me. And um, luckily, Paul uh, decided to make this not just a Canadian organization, but a North American solution. So um, 
it's been great. That was that was the fall of 2019, where 18 of us decided to take the plunge and and start this alternative model, or what we like to call door number three. So door number three. Um, tell me about that. Like so, because uh, I think you've told me, and if I mischaracterize, you let me know. But the plan is to not have majority uh, outside financial interest. Is that the way of saying it? There's there's three basic tenants okay. that um, Coors wants to hold to. Okay. Um, first one is is the doctors, the primary doctors, the lead doctors, the principal doctors at the offices um, will still maintain their dental practice corporation. So they'll still be the custodian of patient records so that there's not going to be a transfer or a constant um, conveyor belt of doctors. That might be a misconception that people have. Who's the doctor in this month? Who's the doctor in this month? There's just a lot of stability built into that type of model. Uh, the second thing is the fact that every single doctor is a shareholder. Every single doctor is a shareholder. And the shares are the same in value, obligations, and rights. And the third and final most important thing to Chorus and the founders and the partners that have joined since is, uh, is the majority of Chorus will always be owned by the doctor shareholders. So um, if and when a strategic partner joins us, it would be at a, uh, a minority share. Okay. Um, I think like probably the most common question that I get is obviously one of the motivations, and there's many, but motivations of joining an OSO is the potential, you know, financial windfall, um, you know, capitalization events, that ability of arbitrage or these terms, again, that I didn't know two weeks ago, and here I am using them. Uh, so how do you accomplish that and give that kind of value to your partners without a major equity event or without taking on, you know, a full sale? Mm. So um, unlike private equity-backed companies that typically have a three, five, seven-year run rate to return um, investments to their investors, which are typically non-orthodontists or a combination of the two, since Chorus is um, primarily doctor-owned, majority doctor-owned and doctor-controlled, um, there's, uh, there's an internal market that we have where doctors can liquidate as they see fit Doctors can also invest as they see fit, so it stays within the doctor market. So it allows, similar to private practice, exiting when you would like to um, versus waiting for this one date, May 2027. That's when we got to do the return. So we feel like that aligns best, such as the private practice mindset. So what we consider it is almost private practice on steroids. It's just gathering together people that were working together in a study club, formalizing that and really trying to foster things, not only for us, but also the next generation. Because if you don't have the next generation supported, which is going to be the future of the specialty, it's the present of the specialty, and the future of the specialty, we want to make sure that every doctor that joins is a shareholder and can continue to grow. Yeah, great. Well, we're going to speed up a little bit. That was awesome. Thank you all for sharing. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to get into some quicker questions now. Um, I like hearing the personal stuff because I like that each story is distinct and unique. As is Chris's, Chris's story is unique in mine. I mean, I'm not talking about my story either, Chris. We'll get to it later, some other episode. Um, so let's jump into some criticisms and common objections. We'll spend about 15 minutes on this. So the things that, you know, as I posted in a couple of groups to try to get an idea of how people viewed corporate ortho, these are the things that showed up most frequently. Um, just to kind of spout off sort of like a, you know, a brainstorming session, what do you think are the most common misconceptions about corporate ortho? 
Well, that it's a mill, that we do bad work, that we don't care, that we have doctors just coming in and out all the time. Selling out. Mm -hmm. Selling out. Was that a concern for you as you went down this road that you were going to be kind of made a pariah or called a sellout? If it wasn't, that's a fine answer. But I mean, is that something that gave you pause or that made you hesitate? I'd say, I think that's a valid concern for any doctor entering any kind of OSO because that's a sentiment from, I believe, doctors that might not have done all the research because that's how it looks for sure because there is financial gain up front where you can take some chips off the table. So I would say every partner of all of our groups has to overcome that based on proper education. Because it's not, I don't view it as a sellout as part of Chorus. I don't think these people view it as a sellout in anything. We view it as buying in. We view it as because that this is going to be an infinite game and because the doctors control things and the majority of doctors are shareholders. This is preservation and evolving the specialty together as a group. So I don't view this as selling out. I view this as we're banding together, a band of brothers and sisters trying to continue to move the profession in the right direction. Yeah, I feel very much the same. I, I think that term sellout kind of is a misnomer as well. Um, we're really not interested in anybody who's looking to sell and leave. And that, that's just not, not what it's about. It's really, it is about partnership. It is about, hey, what can you contribute? How can you have influence over, over the entire organization? What, what great ideas, concepts, workflows, clinical treatment, what, what can you bring to make everybody better? It's like a, it's like a giant study club except very very intimate and in that everyone knows everyone's real numbers and you can make data-driven decisions on what is the what returns the best clinical outcomes uh, what gives the best the highest patient satisfaction rate and I think uh, I, when we take some of these arrows I, I don't know I don't want to speak for everybody here but when you take some of these arrows in the back that hey you don't care you, you just shuffle people through I don't know, I, I, I wonder how many private orthodontists out there are, are doing patient satisfaction surveys. They're really looking to see how happy are their patients with them. Checking to see what, what does this clinical outcome look like and measure and score. And uh, I think as more resources are available in a larger group, you, you just have more to do more with and uh, begin to look and see what, what is the best way that we can treat, that we can take care of patients and make them yeah. the happiest. Um, with this topic, it's only a matter of time before Orthodontic Centers of America comes up, so OCA comes up, or some of the other groups from 80s, 90s that first brought this out, I think Apple, you were telling me, um, which I, I had not known that name, you know, I was not in orthodontics at the time. Um, but corporate groups that started that then failed and faltered. Um, Chris, you were around during that time. <laughs> I was. Yeah, um, right on the bus. And, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, they were trying to solve some of the very similar problems that uh, these, these large groups are, are solving. I would just go, when, when people talk about OCA, that was more of a, a management service organization, an MSO, to add to the alphabet soup. Um, and basically, you paid a percentage of your revenue uh, for some services. Right. Um, and so they didn't deliver those services necessarily greatly. Uh, there was... Uh, OCA was the big one. They went public. They had some accounting problems. There were some others along. The whole thing ended up imploding and, and went away. But an idea maybe uh, a little bit before its time. It wasn't mature and, and so forth. But 
but uh, you know the data on the OSOs, and I, I like the term OSO because uh, the, the specialty has been great uh, to me for 32 years, and the only people that we coach are, are folks that want to go into an orthodontic-centric group. Um, I think that's good for the AAO, I think it's good for the specialty, I think these uh, folks are actually enhancing options for orthodontists. But, you know, it's really interesting to see some of the data that's coming out of, you know, who's joining this group. You know, when, you, when you're a three or four million dollar practice, you know, and you join one of these groups, you think you've kind of got it down. Some of you guys had showman backgrounds, some of you guys had a network of folks. We're seeing those practices grow 10, 15, 20 percent in the first two or three years just from the value of having this kind of, uh, you know, managing your practice as a business, having some group think, mm -hmm. understanding what efficiencies really exist in orthodontics that we could help implement if you can train people properly, which as small business people we don't do very well. And so, um, you know, we're finding we can grow uh, businesses and, um, and that's good for the corporations, it's good for the investors, it's good for the owners, it's exciting for the staff. Um, and so forth. And, and across the board, I, the question I get asked a lot too is, you know, what happens to my team? Um, you know, I care so much about my team. The team are elated. Um, they get better benefits, they get more vacation, they get better training, they get um, an upward mobility if they're a superstar to be part of this organization and go outside of their just one little siloed location. And, and typically, culturally, sometimes a team member just doesn't want to be part of this new culture and they, they kind of select out but um, I think by and large a lot of these criticisms that we hear uh, that I hear um, are you know kind of back to your Heartland question you know that there's some DSOs out there that didn't do it so well with the specialty of orthodontics but these OSOs that are central to orthodontics happy orthodontists they want businesses that are growing they want staff people that are happy they want great outcomes and I think so far, that's what we're seeing. Um, yeah, is there room? Not. Um, I think we've got enough right now. We're kind of country, but um, uh, I think they're doing quite, quite good work and and have happy doctors primarily, happy staff people, and great outcomes. I think the word primarily is important because I, I'll be honest. Like, this is a complicated topic because if you have a negative opinion of really just about anything in orthodontics. You're not going to go put that out on a Facebook group, you know. And as we all know, from different directions and in different ways, people reach out to us individually and, and tell us the truth, you know. Um, and so I've had people reach out to me on both sides of this conversation, both saying how great their experience has been, how negative their experience has been. But in each of those cases, it's different person, different OSO, different DSO occasionally. Um, and so it's been hard to sort of mine all that information and kind of call it to decide what the truth is. And so. Um, you know, obviously we've got some people that see these groups as OCA part two. Uh, we've got people that kind of judge them through the lens of the classical DSO world, which is a mixed bag too. Uh, and so I think it remains to, to be seen, you know, both today but also in five years from now, what, what the truth is going to be. Yeah. Um, and you guys know that. I mean, that's sort of the ch challenge you, I guess, would be that if you're going to come here tonight and talk about how it's so important to take care of staff, take care of doctors, Make sure doctors are making decisions is, is to do it, you know? And I'm not telling you anything that I'm in any position to tell you to do, but I think that would be the big thing because, um, you know, you got the guy from Heartland telling you can't do it. Well, prove that you can. You know, I, th I think that would be the thing. And so if it can be a thing that's good for our profession, fantastic. Um, of course, there's a huge portion of our profession 
and I have some of this same sentiment that thinks it's it's bad for the profession. You know, that's kind of like what's baked into me. And so, in trying to understand this and getting different types of feedback, it's it's been uh, confusing to say the least because mm -hmm. it's it's a complicated topic. Uh, so, to the question of OCA, seems like this is different. Um, so, I guess to this question, my experience in business, and this is not some profound statement, but Whoever holds the majority ownership in, a, in any business ends up making the decisions. Now you can push back on that, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, but assuming that that's true, this is it. who holds the bag makes the call, how do you ensure that the decisions that are made by your organizations are in the best interest of your patients, I think most importantly, team members and doctors? How do you, what, what systems do you have in place to make sure that happens? I don't know who wants it. Jamie? Um, well, I think it's a... Um probably a misnomer that, that organizations, most of them are owned primarily by non-doctors, um, right. you know, <laughs> especially in their younger stages. So we're 70% owned by doctors at the moment. Um, yeah. The controlling in interest does lie with the board, and the board is typically populated by whoever the investor is, right? Um, and so the biggest thing, you know, to go back to the previous question, I, I was pretty concerned about the whole sellout thing, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'd spent a lot of my time doing, you know, writing and teaching people. My, my whole goal was to try to keep the orthodontic patient in the hands of a passionate and clinically skilled orthodontist, right? So with OrthoFi and, and with OrthoPartners, that's um, kind of the way that we were going with it. <coughs> and, um, you know, I think what, what ultimately was the tipping point for us is that we, we found a, an investment partner that we believed was looking for our vision. So that they were there to support us rather than contradict it so we could make it successful together. And so I think ultimately the, the partnership is what, what brought me into the mix. Sure. So what systems do you have to, to sort of make sure, you're further down this sure. road, so maybe you're the right one to answer this, yeah. but how do you make sure that decisions that are being made are consistently in the best interest of patients, team members, doctors? Totally, well first of all, if, unless you're a doctor, a licensed doctor, it's illegal to make a clinical decision or, or, to, or to give any clinical influence that way. So having it set up the way that way where, where the partners, is, as Jamie mentioned, is key. We have partners who understand that and understand where the line is. And Which in fairness, I just want to insert to say like, we know from the DSO world, from people I've talked to like, in terms of quotas for certain types of work and how that does start to influence clinical decisions. Like, so I, I feel like that's a pretty established thing in certain DSO realms, at least that's, the storyline that I've always heard consistently. I'm not. I'm not saying I've heard that. I would say that's a reaction to lack of success, right? Yeah. So like, if you do something well, all of your investors are happy, right? And that doesn't mean you have to be focused on the bottom line or get people to do things that they don't. But if if you have a, a bad partner and you have an unsuccessful business, they're going to try to find ways, and that's where it goes. Fair so I think looking at orthodontics as an apple um, in the corporate world compared to what the majority or almost all of it was before smart doctors came along where it was a a way that they could stop referring they, they viewed it as revenue that they were losing by referring it out mm -hmm. so they bolted on something so that they could then capture that revenue and they managed it that way like a lowest common denominator so they cut costs they didn't treat it like a viable business they they, they stopped losing the referral revenue right and that's a very different mindset so if you build a company that is based from some of the most successful orthodontic practices in the country, you know, Scott, probably maybe the most successful one at the time, Vanille, as successful as there was, 
then you're building it from a position of success and then you can take other great practices and build, like he said, we're seeing some of the best practices in the country grow because the collaborative meritocratic stuff actually works. Everybody has a little bit that they can do better here, a little bit that they can do better there. And that, that perpetuates success that stops all this other stuff from happening. You know, If you do it the right way, and I think people that run successful private practices aren't doing that stuff in their private practice because they're successful. Right? And, and we do see private practices that aren't successful where some of that creeps in where they maybe start to make bad decisions. They start to buy 50 cent brackets from China. They start to do all these things. That exists in both places. But it is possible, we believe, to win all the way around, create a successful business, and focus on great clinical integrity and awesome customer service. Because lots of us have done it already. What, what hasn't been done is somebody to to band that together that in a non-individually or small group owned component. And so these are orange conversations rather than apples, I think, to go back. And I think that's what we're all trying to do is to be an orange in this in this conversation. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, we just lost our 50 cent Chinese bracket portion of our audience. Yeah, I just, sorry. I want to apologize. Um, so, uh, with the 75 cent bracket people, you're good. Stay in there. Um, since I cut you off, Scott, yeah. um, I want to ask you the next question, which is, you know, similar. Another really common accusation is that the clinical quality or the standard of care is lower. We've sort of gotten at that. Um, how do you keep clinical standards high in your organization? Oh, just talk about them, teach them, share them, focus on them. I think one of the one of the things that we have that that's going for us is. We found these successful practices, Chris mentioned three, four million plus practices that, that come and join us and we've seen that, that we've had a great run rate that, of growing them upwards of 27% in their first year. Hmm. And when you can take that, take the focus, that doctor's focus and put it purely on the clinical and, and what, what makes an orthodontist successful aside from all the, the back-end services, and you, and you just allow the doctor to be the doctor it, it is amazing what can happen. That's an and, important point. And uh, that, that's really what we're all about. You do that, you infuse even more culture and lean into, hey, it is all about relationships. Like, that, that's why I chuckle with this argument about, you know, that, that corporate ortho doesn't care. It's like, we win patients the same exact way as, as I did or as anyone does as an independent practice. And it's, it's always about customer service, relationships, reputation and then your outcomes. So how is that experience all in all encompassed? And uh, not only is it the right thing to do, the right ethically thing to do, but um, it's great business. It's, mm -hmm. it's how, that's what we all do. Everyone, everyone listening on this podcast right now is doing that exact same thing, trying to make the best decisions they can clinically, the best decisions they can from a business standpoint. Where do those lines cross ethically? And, and what can we do to provide that service to the patient? So it's, it's really no different. It's just a matter of where do you want to spend your time and, uh, and, and what kind of doctor do you want to be? you want to be a business-oriented doctor or you want to be one that, that just loves loves the camaraderie, loves, loves providing that service, and just loves on people? Cool. Um, I want to remind you, you can comment. You can ask questions. I have some. Do you have some questions? You do? Oh, wow. Let's see what we got. We'll see. Um, Let's do these like real quick. This is great. We have some questions. Thank you, everyone. This is from Joe Stofko. What are the ideal characteristics that o OSO seek? I'll take a stab at that. We'll go down the line, I guess. Uh, 
I can speak for Chorus, and I, it's, it's for us, it's about the people. It's about a growth mindset. It's about people that um, want to be part of a team. Um, I'm sure that you all know that there's, uh, Jamie, with your, with your lineup, you've got very successful doctors, right? So you've got to meld this group together that have operated very well independently. Mm -hmm. And that is something that you have done with orthodontic partners, right? You've got to get all these people into teams. And um, that's something that's really important for us. And it's also about the three pillars that I mentioned, right? Because mm -hmm. for me, when we talk about ownership, for me, one of the biggest pillars and one of the biggest reasons for my decision was Dr. Majority ownership. Sure. Yeah, I'd add to that. I, I would just say, hey, if I was, again, if I was an independent practice, an independent doctor, what kind of person would I want to partner with? And I just ask that question because we want to bring in another partner who's going to be just like the rest of our partners, who has, who has grit, integrity, and uh, is, is ethical, is happy, is, loves people, and, and wants to be a part of something that's going to be bigger than, bigger than themselves. And that, that, those are the kind of people we, we look for, those who mm -hmm. care about their team, those who want that, want something more, and aren't going to be complacent or, or say one thing and then check out and do another and just not, not contribute. It's, it's about what kind of partner are they going to make. I'll answer for Jamie. You have to have lectured a hundred times <laughs> in multiple countries. There's, we have a lot of people that haven't lectured, but um, the, uh, Sorry. The, the thing that I would add, I think, is I agree with them. Um, it's important to have an accurate self-perception of what's, what all this is, right? And part of that comes with doing homework. Uh, as you mentioned, all this stuff is confusing. It, it operates differently than rules we're used to and understanding what you want, right? So each of the organizations, and there's plenty of other ones that are in different positions, we're looking for people that um, aren't done yet, they still have something left to do, but the idea of building this organization, the vision that we have is exciting to them, and they wanna come in and be part of the team to grow something that is hopefully gonna have a positive impact on the profession. Um, you know, some people maybe wanna go to the beach, right? And I think there's uh, everything in between. Um, I don't think our model is right for everybody, and especially a lot of the young people or in, in the middle stages of their career. There's plenty of things that they can do to go and continue to build. Um, but I think spending the time learning exactly what all of their options are and what that means for them specifically and what they want um, is, is something I think, whether that's attractive, whether it's you need to have it or whether you should be doing it, it's, it's some of that. Like you should be doing all of your homework and knowing what you want before you yeah. uh, consider these. If I could distill it, it sounds like sort of the same thing you're looking for in any partnership, uh, sort of like in a, in a spouse or like in a friend or uh, in, a, in a team member, let's say. So um, let's jump into this. I had so many questions that were submitted uh, in my group and elsewhere that I posted, and I'm going to pull some of those out, and maybe we'll try to do these like rapid fire. Some of these questions deserve more time, so we'll see. I hope you're comfortable uh, there in your slippers because uh, it's going to be a little bit uh, but no uh, first question i want to ask is it's more of a composite because this is the question i think that came up most oftenly and it was the most voiced concern let's say about corporate orthodontics and it's this question of continuity of care uh, which we've not quite gotten into maybe touched on a little bit so the question becomes how do you maintain a successful orthodontic practice which i think success that could be a whole another 10 minutes to, to talk about well, let's just distill it to cultural success, clinical success, and financial success. Maybe those are the things that, that make up the success of a practice. You could say, how do you maintain the success after a doctor sells 
uh, or after the founding doctor leaves once their contract is up, or then you enter into a period perhaps, as we've seen in other corporate settings, where you then become to have, you know, this kind of revolving door of associates. I'm not saying that happens in every situation, but l let's be real, at some point that might become the scenario. Um, so the continuity of care as it pertains patients. I mean, I've seen this on a micro level, like in the Memphis area, there's a specific practice, they're on their eighth orthodontist. I'm not trying to compare those to, to what you guys are doing, but there is that potential, let's say. So how do you fix that continuity of care issue? I don't know, is that an answerable question? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. Um, you wanna just go down the line? Or we don't have to go down the line, let everyone. Okay. Who's gonna have the best answer? Oh boy. I'm just kidding around. Why don't you, why don't you start? I have a little bit of experience on it, yeah. So um, really what, what we try to do is forecast and, and to see hey, what's the timeline of the doctor and what do they want in their career, when do they want to retire, um, and, and then be able to backfill appropriately and be able to make that handoff just like you would in any sale of any practice. Get it there and, and make sure it works. Um, I know a lot of Again, I'll kind of take it back to the independent orthodontist who, who hire associates and there's a new associate in there every year. And so again, I kind of chuckle at, at this question that, well, where's the continuity of care on there? And I, and I guess there is a one doctor that sits there, that's, that's right. But, but it's not good for business. We all, can, we all know that. It's not good for the patients to have all that. And you have to have your ducks in a row on writing down treatment plans and, and uh, keeping excellent notes, if, especially if you're gonna share patients as this goes. But just having, having the stuff in place so that the patient's treatment maintains. So the team stays, team's happy, team stays. And if there is a life event, let's say uh, someone, someone has, to, has to move away or can no longer practice or, or things like that, we've had that happen that we're able, to, we're able to plug in an orthodontist there and regionally, and if you have coverage, if you're fortunate enough to have coverage that way, where they can come in and cover for a short time until we can get someone in there permanent. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's the worst case scenario. It's not, not something that anybody wants. And I don't, I don't know of, an, of a business that, that started out going, hey, we're just gonna shuffle orthodontists through here. Right. And, and just, we don't care. <clears throat> and uh, certainly not, not anybody here, not anybody who is ortho, focused would do that. And I think to Jamie's point, kind of taking back to the apple and the orange uh, comparison, I think that's what ended up happening when specialists are bolted on to some of these mm -hmm. GP captive patient models where the patients are stuck in the system. And I think, I think the doctors are stuck too, right? So yeah. I, think, I, th I think a lot of the question is driven behind the, the historical performance of doctors in corporate, but it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because those corporate jobs were always um, a last resort, you know, or maybe they paid you more or whatever the case may be, but very few people would wind up working for whatever big box one and wanting to stay there as their career goal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our job collectively is to provide an environment that's aspirational for the younger doctors that they actually want to go work at, right? So, you know, do you want to go take a job learning from Stuart or Frost or David or, or whoever and get the exposure to that? and? You know, you need to give them the ability to think clinically on their own, make their clinical decisions, so you can't tell them not to do that. You have to give them the ability to get better, um, so some avenue so that they continue to sharpen their saw, right? And then you have to give them some motivation beyond money, so you have to be involved in philanthropic events and have great culture and teamwork. And if you do that, then people will want to work there, and, and, and I think you know, beginning with that is going to solve the problem of the continual turnover, and that's our job to be able to deliver on that. 
And we have to think of this, like Scott says, as the similar challenges or the similar misnomers that we have about corporate groups also happen in private practice. So this is just private practice on steroids, like we said, right? In private practice, <clears throat> when you hire an office manager, I don't know if the private practitioner doctor is viewed as lazy, selling out, or checked out. If anything, we're usually viewed as, wow, you've gotten pretty big, smart, good move. You're really going to enjoy being an orthodontist again. <laughs> Yet, when there's a partnership opportunity with other doctors and OSO, things like that, it's viewed as, oh man, I can't talk to you at a meeting anymore. Yet, we are just having way more adequate support for our managers and our team so we can focus even more clinically as we've grown. So the other thing is in the independent practices that struggle having rotating associates or having continuity care, if you have the right doctor that's going to treat your patients right, take care of your team, take care of your community, take care of your legacy, and if they are invested also and have the opportunity to invest in the same way you do, it should be successful just like on a private practice level, just on a bigger level. So if you treat the next generation with the same decency, I believe, respect and expectations that we do on a private practice level, there's no reason why it should not continue to succeed. Yeah. I would add to, you know, to what these guys have said and Jamie specifically with, with those four points, I think the fifth would be, hey, it has to make sense financially. And they have mm -hmm. to be, you have to have, your doctors have to be happy there. And so uh, everyone is happy living where they're living when they're making enough money. You could be living in Hawaii and not have anything, and it's, it's terrible. <laughs> um, but, um, but having that pathway to partnership is what, what we call it, where we were able to, I mean, in this last equity event that we had, um, we had uh, new grads that came out of school a few years ago that were able to able to take out uh, promissory notes and become partners and, and share in this upside as we grew. And so it's a, it's a, it's a huge thing that today's, and Chris, you, you're the expert on this, uh, today's grads um, who may not want to take the risk of, of buying a practice yet want all the benefits of just doing a, just doing a nine to five yet having the upside on, on some of those things. Yeah, I would just take a, even a, a different tact, a little bit on the continuity of care issue. Um, you know, I, when I go value a practice and do a site visit, we go through all the competitors that are is around your practice, and we say, do you know Dr. So-and-so's practice? And Dr. So-and-so, and then I'll, I'll inevitably get to one. Well, I don't even know who that is, and they've got an orthodontist through there every six uh -huh. months. It's, it's a new one. That, that, that is not um, the kind of OSO environment that, um, uh, that we're talking about. Those exist in every marketplace. And the other thing on continuity of care is we enter this digital age deeper and deeper and deeper. We're going from 24 visits to 18 visits to 15 visits to 12 visits to we're going to be under, you know, 10 visits. Um, believe it or not, uh, the consumer doesn't really love you as much as mm -hmm. you think they do. Um, and they're happy to see you less. And they like your staff more than they like the doctor. And I tell <laughs> doctors, you know, all the time they say, well, I want to finish every patient because I promised them when they started that, you know, I was going to finish. And I said, hey, the consumer's resilient and they're going to be fine with the new doctor that we bring into. This is a doctor to doctor transaction, not a corporate transaction. And, um, you know, the continuity of care has always been there. This practice doesn't go into the garbage when, when young doctor buys older doctor's practice. And one out of one of you are going to retire. 
Um, it's a hundred percent, you know, changeover um, uh, in in all businesses. But in orthodontics, you're not going to be there someday, and there's going to be a, a continuity of care issue for everybody. I don't think they really do exist uh, so much in this OSO space. We haven't been in it long enough to really know because these initial contracts are all five years. You're the only one that's been more than five years. Most of the guys re-sign up and stay. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see with the other ones. But the code these guys are trying to crack is how to stop doctor turnover because yep. we all know that's expensive. Um, so what are we doing right now? We're paying them like crazy. And so it's hard for an independent doctor to pay the same mm -hmm. as what these guys can pay because they have some capital behind them. And 85% of the residents that graduate <coughs> don't want to own a practice right out of school. They want to go learn their craft, get faster, and so forth, and this is where they're landing. So, yeah, I think that's you know, a, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's a fair question. Continuity of care, I don't think, is an issue. Uh, no, it's a fair question, because uh, it, it comes up every time this conversation comes up. I think you answered it well, um, and, I, and I do think you got at the point is that we've not entered into the point of, of the game or the, what might be the end game, as it turns out, of that being a problem. Um, obviously, you're aware of that the potential of that being a problem uh, in many ways, and uh, you'll see if you can combat it. Um, uh, I have so many questions, there's no way I can ask them all. Um, and, and Chris is looking at his watch. Chris is ready to go to bed. I don't blame you, Chris. Um, I want to ask a couple like quick questions. This is like uh, basically a yes or no question. Uh, Jeffrey Kwong asked this. Jeffrey, I hope you're out there. Uh, when OSO owner doctors connect private offices with their OSO, are they compensated for this in any way? And if so, is that a conflict of interest? Does anyone want to answer that? They are not compensated. But as... Obviously, there's a vested interest in that. I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. As every shareholder has equity and every doctor has right. equity, as the group grows, think, everyone benefits together. I think the question, and I saw this question come up, you know, there's, there's this kind of continuing pushback against KOLs and this... Desire to, like you know, referral fees and kickers you're asking for yeah, like yeah. that? I think people want to know that. Not at all. Okay. Does it, anyone else want to answer that? I think that, that they do exist. Um, I think that there are some models where there are, you know, kind of recruiters built into the, the bit that they get paid specifically for any deals that close. Um, you know, also, you know, if you have equity and, and you bring a good partner in and the company gets better because of it, then there's that financial incentive. I think there are ones that are paid specifically just to bring business in as business development. Um, so I think you just have, you know, ask the person that you're getting advice from what their interest is. Um, you know, in our model, we don't do that because we want, you know, to avoid that conflict. I know it exists, so just ask, you know, um, you know, what, what's your vested interest in it? And if it's equity, then they, you know, they're hoping that you are an asset to the business because if you're not, you know, that's not good for the equity. Um, regardless of whether they join or not, it's not good for the business. So, yeah. yeah, I would say every one of our doctors who have joined have known at least one or two other orthodontists in our organization. So, it is about bringing bringing people that this is going to be a great fit for, and they're going to be a great fit. Right on. Um, let's do one more. Uh, this is from Andy Sarpadar. Hey, Andy. Um, basically, and I heard this from a lot of people too, is if if you run the numbers, you ever count and run the number on this kind of the five-year deal, which I know at different times it's been three or four or five, every deal is different. Um, if you run that out, you know, your initial payment plus what you make per year on the contract, uh, depending on the factors, you may end up with the same amount of money at the end. Um, when is the end? 
at the end of that five-year period. So if you kept your oh, practice, you continue to profit off of it. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other calculus that comes into the mix. So why is that assumption wrong that you'd be in the same place? So basically, to say it another way, you could just keep your practice for five years, continue making what you make as the sole owner of that practice, and so then why would you want to join the corporate group? Obviously, there's different times for people to, to need to join a corporate group. Maybe they're exiting. Maybe they're tired of doing X, Y, and Z. Who knows what? I mean, we, you know all the situations where that kind of comes up. But let's say like the average 37, 40, 44-year-old orthodontist looking at these things, kind of in the middle of my career or maybe at the beginning of it, why would I join this? I could just make the same amount of money for five years. What, as you understand these things, what changes that calculus to make it actually more beneficial? And maybe you'd say it's not more beneficial. I don't know. No, I think the time value of money is huge. Um, okay. Get that, get that up front and, and then be a part of the group where your lifestyle changes, stress decreases, and, and you're part of something else. Um, that, that's a big one. And I, and I think I thought I saw this, that question in the thread. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think people are really quick to forget what happened in COVID when it shut down. And how no one knew what the future held, and we had uh, we had I, I had orthodontists inside and outside our organization calling me, and and it was very interesting to hear the different sentiment. Those who who were like, oh my gosh, uh, and they were they're looking at their bank account, very full, and yet chairs are empty, and and they have they have nothing there, and uh, and didn't know what was going to happen. We we forget that really quick as orthodontists and. Uh, uh, so, uh, that would be my, my answer. I, I would say um, it's really complicated, the math, <laughs> right? So, um, and I want to get two in the it's, weeds. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a super in the weeds question. So, like, is you're laughing over here, my, <laughs> it, it, it's really variable. It depends on who you are, what's going on in your practice, where your location is, how interested the group is, what your multiples, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, I would say do your homework, you know, and don't have like your Uncle Frank, who also does your trust attorney, like, figure out the stuff for you like we're laughing but like Uncle Frank is the, great he's great you know um, but <laughs> you want to you know you want to get good advice who's experienced in this healthcare M&A stuff if you're going to consider any of these things and, and, and my advice would be you know there's a, a lot of people who have the initial reaction that whatever it is that's a little bit either fear or anger or whatever well, hopefully if we do our jobs it's not the case but I think what everybody should do is do their homework get good advice Figure out how this stuff applies to them. The, the rules of the practice acquisition or selling or whatever it is game have, are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, the numbers are changing, the people involved in it are changing, the business dynamics are changing. So do your homework and get really good advice and see how this all applies to you and make your decisions with, um, you know, with the right information rather than just what you think it might be. Was I think the best answer to that question? Yeah, no, I think that's good. Uh, well, hey, straight from Jamie into an advertisement. We've got about 10 minutes left, go a little bit over 10. Um, but I want to thank OrthoFi, who is our sponsor uh, for this, and we have a quick message from them. Want to amplify your growth, simplify your operations, and clarify your performance metrics? Then you need to check out OrthoFi. OrthoFi is more than just a payment slider or insurance verification tool. OrthoFi is a practice growth engine that delivers over two times higher same-day starts, 37% lower AR delinquency, and 67% lower insurance delinquency than the average U.S. practice. Get this. Mention TDO Live when you schedule a demo. I love being able to say that. 
and you'll get $2,500 off your Ortho, uh, OrthoFi implementation if you sign up by February 28th. So you got a month, mention TDO Live, it'll make it seem like a good decision to sponsor this. Um, you should visit startmoresmiles.com, that's an amazing URL, startmoresmiles.com, to learn more and to schedule that personalized demo and start getting more yes today. Wouldn't we all like more yes today? Mm -hmm. I would. Um, yes. I would have liked more yes yesterday. You know, so, <laughs> sorry, I don't even know what that means. Um, uh, can so, I chime in on that last question real quick? On starting more yes? Yeah, you may. And not starting more yes, just Thank the financial outcomes. Time. Amy, I think it's a question that everybody wants to know the answer to. And we've done a lot of analysis with a lot of different companies um, for several years now. And um, if you distill it down into a nutshell, it, it is quite complex, but you you, the first answer is, from, from us anyways, you, you can't just solve for um, economic return. However, if you do just solve for economic return, our analysis typically will show that if you have five years uh, or under, this is kind of a get to the beach quickly um, you know, situation, you will almost always do better um, economically selling uh, to one of these groups than you will if you, if you do it with another doctor. Um, or if you just keep running the practice, then walk away. Um, the second thing is your accountant will almost always tell you that um, the stock um, you have to think of as funny money is the most common term, and that you have to uh, calculate that as zero value um, as you're making this decision matrix. And so our advice is if you believe that that's true, uh, you would never, ever, ever join one of these groups. And so you should just self-select out and not try to talk yourself into it or not. Because if you don't believe in that, the math will not work if you're solving purely for economic return. And then um, the last thing is there's so many more reasons to join one of these groups than just economic return. Um, as Jimmy kind of alluded to, that the, the way the conversations almost always start with my office is somebody will call me and say, uh, Chris, I'm you know 57. I've got a $2.5 million practice. And I'll say, how do you feel on Thursday night on a 1 to 10, with 10 being thrilled and 1 being miserable? And we'll start the process that way. Um, and it will go into a conversation of, tell me about these groups. I hear these crazy numbers. Um, and then you start getting educated, like we've talked about, and learning the truth. And maybe uh, you're a better fit for one than the other, or maybe you're just totally not in it. You'll do it the old-fashioned way. But there's just a lot of psychology to this. And uh, you know, I do think if you if you count on one turn or two turns in your ten years or more, uh, it almost always works better financially with the group, um, and the turns being at three x. But you know, you have to believe it's going to your stock is going to accrete in the Neil's uh, in Coors's case, or you're going to have a, an equity uh, capitalization event in the other in the private equity people. So if it turns a couple of times, it's pretty much hard to deny e economically that you're going to do better on a ten to fifteen year deal. <laughs> Great stuff. Thank you, Chris. Uh, so my last section is where do we go from here? Um, I feel like we've got to touch on some of this. I'd hope to touch on more, but you know, obviously these, these topics go deep and these questions are more complicated than just a simple answer. Um, you guys have been excellent, by the way. Thank you. Um, I think a couple things that come to mind is that some people are a, a better fit for this than others. I think depends on geography, depends on you know, what you want out of your career. You know, how much, how important is autonomy and control to you? Um, 
you know, ha how happy are you to be on your own and, and how, how much do you want to be in a group? I mean, there's a lot of these sort of just like very basic kind of personality type things that come up, I think, as it pertains to this. How important is the financial economic side of it to you? Um, you know, so and, and many, many more. Um, one question I just want to get to is, is we sort of look to the future here. I've got maybe two or three left is how popular we think OSOs will become. Um, obviously, you guys are vested in it becoming really popular. Uh, so you're like, let's go to the moon with it, right? Um, wh what's your estimate in five years? Do you have estimates? I know you're like the, the numbers and figures guy. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think you got to look at general dentistry, which I would say is at 25% right now as part of uh, one of these groups. And then I think the orthos at under 10, um, we'll say, easily under 10. So in the next decade, it's going to go fast uh, to 20. Um, then maybe slows down to 30, and then I don't know after that. But I, my personal opinion, opinion is when it gets to 30% or so, uh, it becomes um, uninteresting for me to buy your two or three million dollar practice because it doesn't move the needle uh, because these companies will all be so large. Um, I don't know if that's right, but I, I have the sense that it becomes then an arbitrage market amongst themselves where the bigger companies will buy the little ones and will end up instead of with 12 or 15 OSOs, we'll end up with four. Um, and, and that's kind of how we go into the so tw why does it 2030 and 2040. Why does it end up sort of like pharmacy where it's like effectively all corporate controlled now? Is it, I mean, obviously that's very retail driven and we're different, but why does it ever get to 95% corporate control for orthodontics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the question of the day. I, my sense is the way I see things today is if you're under two million, you're kind of not interesting to most of these groups. And most of the majority of solo practices practice at 1.5 million. Um, and so they have a great life, they have a great lifestyle, but they have a lot of small business problems that these guys could help with, but they're not interested in that practice yet. So maybe they dip down there, maybe they don't. Um, and the other thing is, I, I just think business-wise, like you said, once you get to one and a half billion, two and a half billion, what, whatever it is, a big number of valuation, are you really interested in buying a solo practice in, you know, Overland Park, Kansas, um, or would you rather buy an OSO that's got, uh, you know, $50 million worth of revenue? And I think that's going to be the, the mathematics of that is going to be how it goes. Then maybe they start the Novos, you know. Buying a practice and buying a culture is is way harder than, than building your own. Um, and so we'll, we'll probably see that in the future as well. I think the private practice uh, solo owned or, or one or two owned model is still alive and well. It will be for a long time. I mean, our profession is filled with incredibly smart and gifted people, you know. And um, what it will lean more towards is before where it's kind of default mode that everybody comes out and is now a business owner, it will skew towards the more entrepreneurial ones, you know, who kind of like that aspect of it. And the other ones will wind up going into bigger groups. But I think our, the talent pool of our profession is, and will likely continue to be really deep, that there's all kinds of people that are gonna be doing their own things. Um, I do think that these group practices like ours will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And like I said, if we do our job, then there'll be a, a better option than there were before these particular groups entered. It'll mm -hmm. be a great option for uh, doctors, both old and young, and patients. Yeah. So Chris, I know you're you're going to be doing uh, some different panels next weekend in Orlando. It was a week away, mm -hmm. and you can still sign up. This is the AAO winter meeting. People like to say the midwinter meeting, but they've dropped them in. 
just a winter meeting now uh, that happens to be in the middle of winter. Um, what, give me like an elevator pitch for this meeting because yeah, let's go to meetings. You're going to be fine. I promise. We're here. We're fine, right? Um, what's going to happen at this meeting next weekend? It's going to be a great meeting. There's just so many different ways to practice today that if you just rewind the tape 15 years, didn't exist then. And so we're going to hear from practitioners that practice with uh, pediatric dentists. We're going to hear from practitioners that practice with general dentists. We're going to hear about big group practices. Uh, we're going to hear from the, the, some of the largest female practices um, in the country. Uh, we're going to hear an OSO panel where uh, these guys and some others are going to be on a panel with their CEOs. So you can hear from the leadership on the business side as well as these guys, a two-hour panel. Uh, kind of like we're doing tonight, um, and then we're going to kind of bookend it with with numbers. So we're it's an gonna, hour and ten minutes, Grandpa. <laughs> that's right. Sorry, pal. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to bookend it with the numbers from Gage and with Mary Beth Kirkpatrick and Ryan uh, on the front end. Uh, the AO is going to share some numbers, and then we'll have Shannon Patterson talking about associate pay, recruiting, what you should expect to pay for to get a doctor, and what the market is right now. And then we're going to have Brad Cachero and Dan Wicker talk about financial outcomes of the various modalities that exist. So I think it's, there's something for residents, there's something for new and younger, there's something for mid-life uh, cycle practitioners, and, and some, something for the folks to think about as they consider what their ultimate transition plan is going to be. I hope you'll come and you can see it virtually as well. Perfect. Go ahead. And I think it speaks volumes to the AEO and their leadership and oversight to know that this practice modality is here, and it's not just a blip. So to have an entire winter conference on modalities so that the members can explore all that, I think speaks to the board, speaks to the leadership, and um, I think it shows our entire membership that this is something worth exploring and there's a value in education to see where the, uh, the paths of uh, practice are gonna be. Come see us, it's gonna be great. Yeah, and I'm gonna give it another shout out here in just a little bit. I want to end um, with this, question, and I'm going to start with you on this, because uh, it's going to be about the AAO. Uh, one issue that I'm, I'm passionate about, certainly second to you, is uh, how we keep, well that sounds bad, we're equally passionate, Thank you. Uh, is about keeping the profession of orthodontics working together uh, and on the same team. And maybe that sounds trite, it's a, a feeling that I actually have, so don't call me trite. Um, I feel like six years ago, when direct-to-consumer aligners were coming up, the Facebook groups were sort of peaking on some level. Uh, it felt like the profession came together around that issue. Um, I don't know what we really did to combat it, honestly. It's, it's kind of like tripped on its own uh, shoelaces a little bit uh, recently. Um, my fear, though, in this topic, and when this topic gets brought up, is, is that people kind of hate each other when it comes to this topic, and, and that's a bit of a red flag for me. Um, and I think it's a, it's a potential that people start to see each other more as competitors than colleagues because of this um, and maybe this has helped with some of that and maybe it's just made it worse I don't know Scott um, I'm trying to do my best um, I also fear that this could lead to membership issues with the AAO at a time where I feel like a unified front and being on the same team is important so with that in mind how do we make sure that we continue to work together that we continue to keep whether you're working in an OSO or you've sold your practice at OSO or you're a private practitioner or all the different models that Chris mentioned, how do we make sure that they stay in the AO and that we stay working together? So I talked to Dr. Siegel earlier on today. I talked to Dr. Callahan yesterday, both board members who I respect, and they both reiterated what I assumed the stance is, and the AO is there for orthodontists. Okay. And whether you're in an OSO 
whether you're in a private practice, whether you're an associate, whether you're a resident, you're an orthodontist. So based on that, that is the mission and goal is to protect and defend the specialty. So I have no doubt that the AEO is going to have open arms for every single member in all of our groups. Yeah, Smile Doctors is, uh, is very much behind the AEO. We reimburse all of our doctors uh, for their AEO membership. And we hold one of our annual, Smile Doctors annual meetings, we, we hold it right before the AEO at, at the AEO. Um, very much uh, know that that's how things get done. It's how we preserve the profession. It's one of the things that we, that we put our heads together that we wanted to do in forming Smile Doctors was to preserve the profession. And, yeah, very much support the AEO. Agreed. Um, you know, I think it's important to to know. Uh, you know, this is not a zero sum game, right? So, like, we're not trying to like take stuff. And I think we learned this from the direct consumer market. Like, as much as we like to bash them and post their stock mailings on the internet and whatnot, like <laughs> they they grew the market. Mm -hmm. You know, Invisalign has taken some heat over the years. They really grew the market. You know, and I think the goal should be to to keep the orthodontic patient in the hands of the orthodontist. And there's tons of market that's available for us to grow into if we're doing it well, right? And, and I think these other companies have shown that there's a lot of interest out there. We have to be good at delivering the care and doing marketing, customer service, and all those things that are necessary to grow the market. And I think if, we're, if all of us, whether it's OSO or the orthodontic practitioner or whomever is doing that job, it's a win for um, the orthodontic community, AAO, and the patients. Um, so that should be the focus, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well said, and we're going to end there. Thank you. He just delivered value. <laughs> Provided value. Good, created value, yeah. Exactly. Um, so, uh, that's a great lecture title. Man. That was a great lecture title. Uh, that's an inside joke. If you want to learn more about this topic, and uh, after a, it was just an hour and 15 minutes, thank you, Chris. Well done. Uh, well, I don't know. It, it, um, you could go learn more next weekend at the AAO. Midwinter Conference. I'm just kidding. It's in Orlando. Uh, you can register at this really long URL that I'm not going to read, or if you know how to use the internet, just Google it. Uh, it's the AAO Winter Conference, and they will charge you some money. There's a hotel block. You'll stay there. It'll be great. You'll see people, uh, probably some food or something, um, but go learn. Go support Chris. Uh, it'll be fun, and if you don't want to go to the meeting, you can go to Universal or something. Um, I'm excited to announce, and you just brought it up, is I'm trying to find controversial topics because they generate buzz. Uh, my next podcast guest will be uh, Align CEO Joe Hogan. Uh, so that's going to be fun. Uh, mm -hmm. So we're going to be discussing Invisalign, the bad, the good, and the misunderstood. I came up with that. I hope it's good. Uh, I'm going to be flying out to Phoenix uh, to interview Joe. And basically, you know, last six, seven years, there have been some great advances by Invisalign, whether you use it or you don't, or you hate it or you love it or whatever added some great value to uh, orthodontics, I think. And there's been some definite missteps and some definite PR, you know, uh, falters. Uh, we're going to talk about all those things. I'm going to ask him all the difficult questions, and he's been kind enough to agree to that. I think it's going to be incredible. There will be more details on that to come. Uh, lastly, we're only five months out from the AAO 2022 in Miami. Thank goodness they put it in Florida, so we know the meeting's happening. Uh, they're crazy down there, truly. Um, especially in Miami, most of all. I'm just kidding. Love the place. I can't wait. I'm going to be speaking. I think most of us here are too. Uh, the band that I'm in, Relapse, is going to be throwing an enormous Miami Vice 80s themed party. That's true. Friday, May 20th. It's the night before the AO begins. So make sure that you arrive in Miami by 8 o'clock on that Friday night because you will want to be there. 
there will be um, the room will be suffused with alcohol. So relapse in Miami. Relapse in Miami. So it's either go to relapse or Tiesto, or we got to decide Tiesto? like wherever Tiesto's we're going to. We talked to Tiesto. You sure? People. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, we'll be doing Tiesto's <laughs> music to make up for it, and we will be having some Miami-themed music. So don't worry, Tiesto. Shame on you. <laughs> um, I also want to thank to thank everyone who listens to this on Apple Podcasts. You know, most people listening to this are not listening to it live; they're listening to it later. Thank you. Uh, give us a five-star review, if you will. Uh, and finally, thank you for spending time uh, with me tonight. It says on your Thursday night. I know it's your Friday night. Thank you to your little dog that's been sitting there with you, patiently uh, waiting uh, for you to stop watching this. And uh, thank you to my guests, Dr. Zanil Adikula, Dr. Scott Law, Dr. Jamie Reynolds, and my ortho father, Chris Benson. It's so funny, I wrote this, and y'all were in that right order. It's amazing how that works. I also want to thank Alan, who's here in the room with me. He did not get his fajitas, but he set all this stuff up and did a fantastic job. Thank you, Alan. I want to thank Scott, Tom, Trenton, and Alex from Neon Canvas. Uh, you're on Neon Canvas's website in a, in a manner of speaking. If you'll click up above, there's a thing that says free audit. That'll give you a free uh, digital marketing audit. Uh, it's custom made. It's not some like little tool that spits it out. Uh, and you can talk to our team about working with us and helping build your practice, whatever kind of practice it is. We'd love to do that. Uh, and also, special thanks to our sponsor, OrthoFi. They were fantastic. Oliver and Brian, thank you guys from their marketing team. Uh, go to OrthoFi. Learn more at startmoresmiles.com. Guys, that's all I got. Nice work. That's all I got. So we're going to go hang out. I think the bar is open for another 16 minutes here at the uh, Hyatt Regency. Undisclosed, undisclosed. Yeah, at undisclosed location. No, we're in Dallas. Um, (laughs) So from all of us here at the Digital Orthodontist Live, I'm Dr. Kyle Fagala signing off. Thank you so much, guys. Good night. Great job, everybody.